Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. You are listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. I am Tom Butler. Joining me again, as always, is Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. Say hello. Hello. And it's another action-packed episode for you. And uh, we are continuing our adventures into the letter C, C for Charlie. Um, And yeah, there's a lot of... um, Is it correct to call them Bond girls or not? I I feel bad calling it Bond girls. I don't... I try not to call them Bond girls now because yeah, it's old. It's old hat, isn't but it? I do, I do find it hard to to not say it. So sometimes it's, I'll instantly say it without thinking about it, but I try not to. Yeah. So we have a lot of Bond women, leading ladies, Bond's leading ladies. We've got a lot of those in today's episode, um, and also um, a Bond villain. It's really exciting. I feel like it, it might be the first Bond villain we've done, apart from Blofeld. Oh, apart from Blofeld, <laughs> <laughs> I got that one. That, that two hours of talking about him. Two hours of talking about Blofeld, yeah, of course. Um, and then also a couple of uh, production people as well. Um, so shall we kick off, Brendan? Who have you got? C is for Karoff, Joseph Karoff. He's a designer born in New York in 1921, and he is apparently still active. Now, I've had an issue with this in terms of finding out about him. So in terms of what he did for the Bond franchise he created the logo the 007 logo with the the gun as the number 7 it's, it's iconic we've all seen it we all know it all over the world so you would think there would be a plethora of information about this guy it's been very difficult um, so if anyone can add to this please do please let us know we'll give you the details at the end of the episode so he's a major designer of book covers and movie posters and his most famous work is obviously the bond logo and it was only meant to be a letterhead so just uh, for the production when they were sending out invoices and stuff like that it was just going to be at the top and so he just was writing the the number down and it sprang into his head and he said, adding the barrel and the trigger was a pure joy. Now, I can imagine, well, it's hard for us because we've seen it. It's iconic. It's like, it seems obvious, doesn't it? You look at it, you go, seven. Yeah, it's the part of a gun. But you imagine at the time where you've been given that to design. It's pretty incredible to have that sort of light bulb moment. Yeah. So David Chasman, who was a, an executive for United Artists, he said... With Bond, it was obviously glamour, exotic locations, beautiful women. And we got artists like Robert McGuinness, Frank McCarthy, Bob Peaks and Mitchell Hooks. So these guys helped create those early posters that we all know, like the, from Russia With Love and Doctor No. Iconic posters. Yeah. We had advertising agencies come, agencies come up with ideas, producers had ideas. I'd come up with concepts and so on. So it's impossible to credit any single advert to a single person. Because it became a group effort, a group idea, with one exception. The 007 pistol design was entirely the work of designer Joe Karoff. So he, and that's the thing that's that's stood the test of time, the thing they're still using now. And if you compare his original version to the one now, there's not that much difference, really. It, they've slightly modernised it. They incorporate, if it's got like two uh, letter O's in the title, they'll incorporate that into the logo as well. But that seven is still the the handle of the pistol. So in terms of his other work, uh, do you remember the Orion graphics at the beginning of films? You know, oh, yes. The, yeah. yeah. So he designed that as well. Oh, interesting. Nice. 
West Side Story poster, again, incredibly famous. Yeah. I think most people could draw that from, from memory, just, yeah, if you, even if you've not seen the film. Um, don't think I could, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe you can. I trust you, I trust you. <laughs> um, the film poster for Manhattan. Oh, with, yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and Cabaret. Ah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, good. Yeah. Quite uh, a selection. Quite often his work... I mean, there's many, many more, but I didn't want to... Go, he's done so much that to go, to go into it. But I also didn't... I couldn't sort of attribute it directly to him as well because the lack of information. So I only got the ones that definitely I know he did. And sometimes he gets confused with the work of Sol Bass. Mm. So they will... They'll say it was his work and uh, not Joe Karoff's, which is a shame. Mm. I think it's because their styles are very similar. Yeah. So yeah, that's the information on jo- on Joe Karoff. So and he's what hundred now? It'll be a hundred this year. Yeah, born in nineteen twenty-one. I mean, and but that logo has really stood the test of time, hasn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a simple one. I was actually thinking about that logo, and I've seen some of the older versions of it. And um, it, we look at it now and think that's a cool logo, but it's actually the, the concept is quite tacky, really, isn't it? The 007 and it's a gun. It, it, to do that, to, to do it well, is is quite a impressive feat. Um, I reckon if you somebody said if that that logo didn't exist and somebody said to one of us, "I want you to draw a logo for 007 and turn the seven into a gun," it would look awful. Mm. It'd be yeah. absolute rubbish. So yeah, it's a it's a testament to the kind of font and the typography that's been used and it's good that they're not doing too much to stray away from it as well i think it's it's so iconic isn't it i mean you can't if you were to redesign that yeah well do many film characters have a a logo themselves they don't really do they no they all have type 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 faces like the star obviously star wars has its has its look right and um Oh, we're going to say Star Trek to a certain extent, much less though. Um, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, they all have a type, yeah. That's yes. right, yeah. But yeah. but the the name James Bond, that's the character. 007 is actually not a character, is it? To, to no. It just becomes the branding, doesn't it? Yeah. Something's yeah. always bothered me about that 007 logo, though, is that it doesn't look like a PP, a Walther PPK, does it? Oh, um, he's it always looks, got to pick something, yeah, hasn't he? Oh, back to the drawing board then. Well, <laughs> well, he's still alive. You can speak to him. You've got to. You've basically you've got to fudge it a little bit to make the 007 work. That's just that's just my um, observation. It looks yeah. more like a Luger to me than a Walter PPK. But oh. um, I'll be honest. I've never thought about the type of gun it was. <laughs> well, listen. That's how <laughs> much detail I think about it. C is for Cartledge, William Cartledge. And who's William Cartledge? Well, he's a English film and television producer who's who's worked on uh, You Only Live Twice, Spy Love Me, and Moonraker, as well as quite a few other films. To be honest, he's quite a he's quite a, he's obviously an English filmmaker, and he, he's um, he was born in 1942, so he's 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 been around for a while. He's got a few decades of films behind him. Uh, the probably the the most important thing you need to know about Cartledge is that he works quite a lot with Lewis Gilbert, who right. of course mm. directed those three Bond films. So there's quite a big link, and it's not just Bond films. He he works on a lot of films with with Lewis with Lewis Gilbert. So um, yeah, it all kind of ties together, and you realise that, that there's that relationship between the two, and, and they kind of always work together. What does he do? Well. His roles on films have developed over time. So he's worked as kind of second unit assistant director on films. He's worked as associate producers. He even worked as director on some films. So he's got quite a wide range of, of, of what he's actually worked on. But let me give you a bit of a history behind him and, and we'll, we'll work towards the, the Bond side of things. So he's, he's got quite a expen- extensive um, series of films that he's worked on and they do range quite a lot in terms of quality and, and what you might know. And one of the things that I found uh, in an interview that he, he talked about is is how he talks about the British film industry. And he says he talks a bit about how hundreds of British films are made, but hardly any of them ever people ever see. Uh, and um, 
that's pretty true for a lot of the films that he's worked on. I don't know if they were popular at the time, but they definitely not stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. So ones that he's that you will know about, or uh, not not just films. He um, he associate produced three episodes of the Betty Hill Show. Um, he worked with a second unit assistant director with Gilbert on Alfie, the original mm. one. Co-produced Educating Rita, uh, and then he worked with, and this t- ties in nicely with. Jonathan Price, who we'll be talking about in a bit. He produced Consuming Passions, which is... Uh, have you heard of this film? This is a good yeah. example of what... A lot of his films are like this. You look at them and you think, never heard of that. It looks like a little B-rate movie that, that I you know, never made it to the cinema or anything. But that was a pretty big film. It was written by Michael Palin and Terry Jones. Starred Jonathan Price. It looked massive. It like There's some big stars in it. Um, and it's about... the The concept is quite ridiculous but it's um it's about a chocolate factory and they're that they somebody some bloke falls in the chocolate and dies and they try to get the chocolate back but they realize that every like the whole everyone who's bought it loves it it's like their favorite chocolate they've ever had so then now they try and find a load of dead bodies right. to start making chocolate with quite an interesting concept <laughs> it actually when i first read the synopsis i had to read a couple more just to make sure i got it right because it's such a difficult one to understand um, he also uh, wrote and directed An Ideal Husband in 1998, the Oscar Wilde play, uh, which actually came out a year before another film of An Ideal Husband, which starred uh, Rupert Everett. He didn't do the one with Rupert Everett, and he did the other one. Um, and another th- another thing that he's done is, and I, I, I was trying to remember this, and I'm sure I must have seen it, but uh, he actually uh, was nominated for an Emmy for Dinotopia, Oh, it rings a bell. I thought it might with you because you like your dinosaurs, don't you? So, I do like a dinosaur, yeah. <laughs> um, but I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember what it was, and I, I tried to kind of watch a few clips, and I don't think I have seen it. I think I think I remember it be existing, but I don't think I ever watched it. But yes, so that's that's all the kind of stuff he's done outside of Bond. But then obviously he's worked on You Only Live Twice, uh, Spy Who Loved Me, and Moonraker. He was assistant director on You Only Live Twice, and then uh, was associate producer on Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker and they were the only three that he did and to be honest there's not a lot of information really about his kind of work on Bond but some of the stuff that that I did find out that was quite interesting was as assistant director one of his main jobs was to ensure that everything was basically working on set and um, all the production schedules came together Um, but then when it when it came to Spyro Love Me he he started working with Ken Adam quite a lot and he was he was quite heavily involved with the 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 sets and the building of the sound sound stages um, which of course in Spyro Love Me is a pretty big deal we all know the story about the 007 stage the biggest sound stage in Europe being built um, and not being ready so they had to do a lot of filming in different places as they're actually building this 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 stage and um he talks quite a bit about how the strategy behind that um and how he actually pulled all that together and they said that because the stage was being built and because that that's that whole um uh, sound stage was there was other companies trying to use it as well that they, they had to have like this smart strategy to actually doing it so what they did was they filmed all of the small stuff first so all of the little office scenes all of the uh, this this ski lodge at the start where um, Roger Moore's it uh, get, has got his um, uh, little watch and then he shoots down the the mountain and flies off uh, with a big parachute. Um, so he so he did, and their general goggles office and a few other things like that. So they they filmed all the small stuff and then once they'd done the small stuff, they went abroad and they did all the all of the um, sets uh, in places, Egypt and Sardinia, and then they came back and the only bits they had to do when the soundstage was ready and there was nobody using it, they filmed the super tanker scene and they did the Atlantis scenes then. So he was instrumental in all of this kind of process of putting all that together. And at that time, there was, uh, he talks a bit about this in a few interviews where he's, he talks about how Spy Love Me was a massive budget. It, it, it was almost like there was a lull in Bond where it, the quality went down a bit and the, the size of the sets and everything went down a bit. And then Spy Love Me, they they went big, they went all in and they wanted to make it really good. And that's why they did all these massive these massive sets. And they also, there was a, there was a bit, which probably, I'll probably talk about this a bit more when we go through the Spy Love Me and, and, and Roger. But one of the things he talks about is that there was a big focus on Roger's character as well. Um, and they wanted to make him his own character. In in the previous two films, he he he's, he's almost kind of 
trying to live in a shadow of Connery. And then in spite of me, they wrote it for him so that it was about it. Roger's character was the was was the focus. And as I think you'll agree, it comes across quite well. Good decision. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's him, really. He um, uh, he was instrumental in a lot of the big scenes in You Only Live Twice. He was uh, he talks about they used to have script conferences um, where they'd have these ridiculous outrageous ideas for things to happen in the film and one of those was the uh, helicopter picking up the car uh, as as they're driving off and um, he was he was part of that process so yeah a lot of big ideas and then obviously did moonraker and that was it but one thing he did say about moonraker which i thought was quite interesting is um although it was very successful i always felt slightly uncomfortable that we were following a trend rather than setting one the big thing about moonraker was going up into space which was because of star wars and all those other films at the time so that's nice knowing that he he wasn't on board with that whole process and he mm. he, he saw that there was possible issues with it but um yeah there you go that's um william cartledge that's easy for them to say in hindsight isn't it about moonraker <laughs> yeah but i imagine at the time if you were a scriptwriter on it and people kept saying we've got to do space we've got to do space because it's big at the time you'd be like all right but it's not really <laughs> In the, it wasn't part of the original concept and, and little bits like because obviously he's working on it day to day he's working on the, all these sets and stuff so he would have been involved in the stupid what was it the uh, when he touches the keypad yeah things like and that it's close encounters yeah close encounters things like that you're probably probably involved in it going do we have to I don't know it feels like a, a natural progression for those films at that time I could be wrong, but... Uh, So there we go. That's William Cartledge. C is for Carver, Elliot Carver. Uh, Elliot Carver, of course, is the primary villain in the 1997 James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies, and he's played by the actor Jonathan Price. Carver has no provenance in the Ian Fleming novels. He's a completely original creation for um, for the film's Um, And as you'll remember, he's a media mogul um, whose news empire, the Carver Media Group, uh, has the power to make or break governments by influencing public opinion. He's quite an interesting sort of complex villain. Um, Bond, as Bond says in the film, Carver can topple governments with a single broadcast. So I'll just give you a a brief summary of his fictional uh, biography. And then we'll talk a little bit about um, Jonathan Price and also where the character came from. So. Elliot Carver, uh, in the in the story of the of the film, is uh, was born in Hong Kong, Hong Kong uh, and is the illegitimate son of a German woman who dies in childbirth, and his father was the press tycoon Lord Roverman. Um, uh, his father sold him to a Chinese family for fifty pounds, um, and then at the age of sixteen, Carver went to work for a Hong Kong newspaper. And then by the time he turned 30, uh, Carver takes revenge on his father by building a rival chain chain of newspapers that drives his father to bankruptcy and then uh, to suicide. So then when we meet him in Tomorrow Never Dies, he's in his 50s and he sees himself as the emperor of the air, a modern day uh, Napoleon who commands papers and news stations like um, a general commands his army. Um, and then obviously there's that famous scene where he's blackmailing the president with a, a cheerleader tape and then um, obviously then leaks that to the press. Um, so he sort of proposes as a as a freedom loving um, philanthropist. But actually, you know, his plan is to create a war between Britain and China so that he can um, install a government in China that will give his um, media group satellite transmission rights. Uh, it's quite a complicated setup, but um, yeah, he's just he's a bad guy basically. He's got this stealth plane, and he kicks off the events of Tomorrow Never Dies by shooting down um, a Chinese plane and sinking the HMS Devonshire um, and stealing a missile from the ship as well. And then James Bond obviously is then sent in to investigate, as is Wai Lin of the Chinese military. Um, and obviously the interesting connection between Carver and Bond is that Bond had a past relationship with Carver's uh, wife, Paris, who we'll talk about in a minute. As you know, Carver dies at the end of Tomorrow Never Dies. Spoiler, he gets killed oh. with a CVAC drill. Um, and then in the press, it's reported that uh, he killed himself on his lot, yacht in the South China Sea. Mm. So he's yep. played by Jonathan Price. You guys know Jonathan Price? Mm hmm. Very well, yeah. yes. What a great actor. He's one of my favourite actors, but I think he's horribly miscast in this role. Agreed, um, yeah. Yes. Because yes. the one thing you know, we know about Jonathan Price is he's a very charming, almost avuncular screen presence, right? Mm. 
He's mm. just not. Yeah. Uh, for me, anyway, I just don't think he's. He, I don't think he's the right man for this role. But he he does a good. He does a good job. Um, so he's born in 1947. Uh, in June 1947, uh, he's got a CBE, and he was born in Wales. He's actually Welsh, which I didn't know um, before I started researching him. He went to grammar school and then at age 16 he went to art college and then he went off to train to be a teacher uh, in Lancashire. And actually while he was studying to be a teacher, he took part in a college theatre production. Um, and actually he impressed his tutor so much that they suggested he should become an actor and, and actually applied on his behalf to join RADA, um, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, which is like, you know, the pinnacle of British acting education. Yeah. And he was awarded a scholarship to join RADA. So he was actually born Jonathan, sorry, John Price um, with an I. And uh, he had to change his name to, to Jonathan Price because of equity. There was another actor with a similar name. He joined the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool when he graduated uh, and became an artistic director. And then he performed with the Royal Shakespeare Company and at the Nottingham Playhouse. Um, and then in 1977, he won his uh, a Tony Award for a play that he did with Mike Nichols. Uh, this was called The Comedians, sorry, just called Comedians, and it was a role written specifically for Jonathan Price. And then it, it was uh, in that, that, around that time he made his first film appearance in the film called The Voyage of the Damned, starring Faye Dunaway. Then he had a load of success on the stage again, continuing doing that. And then he had his big film breakthrough in 1985 in uh, Terry Gilliam's film Brazil, which for me yes. is a masterpiece, a science fiction masterpiece. Um, definitely seek that out. He worked again with Gilliam on Baron Munchausen. Again, one of my favourite films of Gilliam's. I forgot he was in Baron Munchausen. Who was he in it? Yeah, he plays uh, the right ordinary Horatio Jackson, um, which suggests he's a sailor. But I don't remember him that well either. But um, mm. uh, interestingly, which I learned uh, while researching him, uh, in 1988, he also appeared in three of the earliest episodes of the improv show Whose Line Is It Anyway? He was one of the founder cast members of Whose Line Is It Anyway? alongside Paul Merton and John Sessions. Brendan's suddenly interested. Wow, I didn't know this. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Ah. Uh, it was around this time he then got into a bit of trouble because he was in a play um, called the, uh, Miss Saigon. Sorry, he was in Miss Saigon, the musical, and he was it playing a role of the engineer. Apparently he's the first person to play this role. And there, are, it's written down as a Eurasian pimp. I don't know what that means, but apparently he was a painted Eurasian pimp. And it meant that he was playing an Asian role, but obviously he's a white English actor, so uh. a Welsh actor, sorry. And so there was a lot of... Um, it was fine. I think it was fine in the West End, but when it moved to Broadway, there was a lot of uh, protesting against the play, and particularly actually against Price um, mm. himself. And actually Cameron McIntosh, the producer, had to cancel the uh, production in New York Um but after it was ca- after it was announced that it was cancelled, there was a lot of protest then, counter-protests from the acting union, and they ended up uh, putting the production on. And actually, Jonathan Price won a Tony Award in 1995 for that. Oh, he kept the same role? Yeah, he did it. Wow. And actually, Charlton Heston, this is Jonathan Price, he said, I got support from very strange and unwanted quarters. Charlton Heston sent me a photo of him playing Fu Manchu and he signed it from one yellow face to another and I thought that's not what I'm doing Charlton thanks for your support anyway (laughs) (laughs) and actually he was very sympathetic to the people he had issues with the with with playing the role as well but but there you go Mm. but I mean you know we could talk about his career for forever I mean he's made so many amazing films and tv shows Evita in 1996 he was in the Pirates of the Caribbean films he was in Glengarry. Yeah, he he was in Glengarry Glen, Glen Ross, The Age of Innocent, Terence Malick's The New World, a brilliant film called The Wife from 2017. I don't know if you've if seen that with Glenn Close. I can, but, I can, I can see the the DVD cover. Yeah. I think we've got it somewhere. <laughs> I just it's, watched it. It's fantastic. And then in 2019, he was Oscar nominated for playing Pope Francis in The Two Popes. Oh, yeah, I really like that mm-hmm. film. Yeah, yeah it's very good. Fantastic. Yeah. He's great in that. Yeah. Obviously, we also know him as the High Sparrow in Game of Thrones. He was in Taboo with Tom Hardy. And then he's going to be playing Prince Philip in The Crown also. Ooh. Of course, yes. Yeah, yeah, in the final seasons of The Crown. So that's mm. going to be great. Looking forward to yeah. that. So let's talk about Elliot Carver and Jonathan Price. So Bruce Fierstein, who uh, we know was working on Goldeneye and then went on to work on Tomorrow Never Dies, 
He said, I wanted Elliot Carver in Tomorrow Never Dies to be a larger-than-life villain. He's someone who can do anything that is possible to do today with an unlimited amount of money. He said, he was in my hotel. I was in my hotel room flipping channels one morning between two different news networks watching their coverage of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and getting two very different takes on the same story. And it stuck with me. At that moment, I thought the villain could be in the media. And that's where the idea came from. Yeah. Now, interestingly, Fierstein actually was able to pitch this idea to Cubby before Cubby died in 1997, 96, 97. Because yeah, as we know, they they work on the next film well, yeah. as they're doing the, the current film. So it would have been the last one that Cubby would have had direct uh, knowledge of. And, and, and he actually really liked the idea. And then Michael G. Wilson liked the idea as well. And actually, when you think about it, the press was a really hot topic at the time because, you know, Diana was being hounded by the press. Rupert Murdoch was, you know, everyone was talking about Rupert Murdoch. Robert Maxwell had killed himself in 1991. He was the owner of the Mirror Group. Um, and so the press was such a like hot topic at the time. And as we know, the Bond films really, really go for these uh, hot topics. So Fierstein's idea for, for Carver was that he was going to start a war over Hong Kong as part of a plot of personal revenge. Um, and the character was initially going to be called Elliot Harmsway. Now, this is a name that is connected with Fleming because Fleming's wife, Anne, had previously been married to a press magnet called Esmond Cecil Harmsworth, who was the second Viscount of Rothermere and publisher of the Daily Mail. Mm. So the name Harmsway, Harmsworth, but they, the producer decided it was too close for comfort. And so the name was changed to Elliot Carver. Um, Fierstein said that Albert Finney was the physical prototype for Carver. Obviously, we know Albert Finney went on to play Kincaid in Skyfall, but this was his yeah, first it, brush with Bond. And it's actually, an interesting, it, it, it probably would have been better, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, listen to who they offered it to. Anthony Hopkins. They actually mm. offered it to Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. Mm. And he was very keen to do it, but actually decided not to do it because he went on to star in Martin Campbell's Mask of Zorro instead. Mm-hmm. Oh dear. Anthony Hopkins, <laughs> you know, this is the 90s. This is Anthony Hopkins at his absolute prime. And, you know, if yeah. this had been Elliot Carver, Anthony Hopkins, you know, it would have been very different. But uh, Barbara Broccoli was a fan of Price and he said that he decided to do it because my children absolutely adored Goldeneye. And their response to that probably had a lot to do with me accepting the role. So there you go. So um, he says uh, in an interview with AV Club, he said, I think it comes as a surprise to a lot of people when I say to them, well, I never really was a big James Bond fan. I enjoyed them, but I didn't go out of my way to seek them out. So at the time, I'd ne- it had never been an ambition of mine to play a Bond villain until my agent, James Sharkey, who was at the time Tim Dalton's agent. I think it had been an ambition of Jimmy's that I should be a villain. But it was a very happy, fortuitous kind of thing that that particular script and that particular character I could relate to. So I think he liked the idea of Carver being this complex um, villain. Uh, He thought it was an idea that he could get his teeth into. Um, And he really practised for this uh, big, long speech that he was supposed to give in the film. The one where he's thought to be addressing the world audience, talking about, you know, his vision for tomorrow, his newspaper... And so he practiced this speech and uh, and actually where he, he delivers the speech. But in the film, it cuts away to James Bond having a fight. Do you remember? He has this fight back, backstage after Carver's men take him out of the yeah. party. So he's giving this speech. Jonathan Price is giving it him all. But actually the film's showing <laughs> something completely <laughs> different. So, um, yeah, Jonathan Price just says, ah, Hollywood. I enjoyed it, but the production and the production people, the Broccoli's are good people, so it was nice to do. And I enjoyed being with Pierce Brosnan. He's a good guy. Um, Brosnan, for his uh, take, he said that Jonathan Price is stellar. He's a wonderful actor. We have a really flamboyant, ma- maniacal, charismatic villain, and the greater the villain, the greater the hero. Um, But actually, as we know, as we've discussed before, this film was a bit of a mess behind the scenes. The scenes were being constantly rewritten. And actually, Jonathan Mm. Price said, you know, he found it really challenging. He's he's quoted as saying, I will make sure in the future that it's written into the contract that the script I agree to will be the script we use. And he later told the writer Gary Morecambe uh, in the book Martini's Guns and Girls that he'd wished that director Roger Spottiswood had allowed him to camp it up a little bit more. 
Mm. So that's Elliot Carver. Interesting. So I Definitely mean, a bit of a divisive uh, villain. I think, you know, as you're saying, with Tomorrow Never Dies, he, Elliot Carver is just Tomorrow Never Dies all over, isn't he? He's, he? Everything about that film is just big, brash, um, over the top. It just it's good though, doesn't it? On uh, uh, he is generally quite a, a interesting villain. I, as you say, I think he's just too complicated. He's just too much to him. It's very it's, difficult to follow what he wants. Because when a man's, what I always think about Elliot Carver is that when a man want is like that, like desperate to, you know, power and money, the the way he's going about it seems so roundabout. Like he's got all this money at his disposal. He's got stealth boats. He's using the newspapers to then start a war between other people when he could probably just do like do it a lot simpler. Yeah, there's um, def- he's probably he's probably the, he's probably peak complex villain, isn't he, for Bond? And he's got too complex. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely there's definitely a disconnect between the idea and the execution. I think the idea is sound. I like the idea, but there's just something just doesn't match up. And I love Jonathan Price, but just for me, the two things just don't meet in the middle. No, um, I think there's also a problem with Tomorrow Dies in in that it doesn't age well for for a lot of reasons, but especially his plot doesn't age well because it is so specific to that time mm. and yeah. what was happening in the media at that time. Because now you look back and you go, was that? I imagine people who watch it who are young, yeah, and were like kids at that time, and now they're adults looking at back, going, what is it? What's it going on about? What's a newspaper? Yeah, yeah. what's a newspaper? Yeah, yeah. just the idea. You can imagine that the, the newspapers wield so much power as well, which is not the case anymore, is it? Well, it's it's tantamount to them doing it nowadays, but with social media, and then it's just just too complicated, isn't it? Just just rob a bank, rob a sort of load of gold bullion from Fort Knox, please. <laughs> nice and simple. Just world domination. Yeah, but Elliot Carver, obviously famously married to Paris Carver. Yes. Here we go. So, Here we go. So C is for Carver, Paris Carver, who's the wife of Elliot Carver, but also the former lover of James Bond. So when, in in the film, when they first meet again, Bond and Paris Carver meet, and he gets a slap, a nice hard slap. That's the first thing that, you, that happens, because she's angry that the last time they saw each other, he just said, I'll be right back, and obviously... He wasn't. He uh, scarpered. So you can tell by the way that they speak, you know, and talk to each other, the body language. They know know each other very well. She also says, do you still keep a gun under your pillow? Um, Elliot Carver is jealous of this because he, you know, he's not stupid. He can see that that's the case. So she has to make up a lie. She goes to Bond's hotel room and says that, you know, she still clearly has feelings for him. Um, and said that she would check and see if he's died and things like that. He confesses. So this is they're trying to make Bond a bit deeper. He confesses that they were getting too close. It was getting too serious. Um, and so he backed out. They spend an evening together. Classic, classic Brosnan. So, and she's actually a key to helping Bond locate Carver's secret lab. Carver learns of this, sends Doctor Kaufman, who is um, a hitman, to go and assassinate her. And then Bond returns to find Paris dead. So, relatively short but pivotal role in the plot. So, Terry Hatcher said, It's a small role, but it motivates James's actions in a way. I guess it's one of the few times in a Bond film that there has been some sort of past emotional relationship between Bond and a woman. She has to make a choice to be loyal to her cruel and unscrupulous husband or help her former lover. And this decision is an integral part of the movie. Uh, and it is because it, you know, it s- speeds up him locating Carver. Who knows how long it would have taken without that. So in terms of the role, so she got the role over Monica Bellucci, who obviously went on to become a Bond girl anyway. And at the time of shooting, she was three months pregnant at the filming start um, with her husband, John Tenney. And the publicist said the pregnancy did not affect the production schedule. However, <laughs> Pierce Brosnan and Terry Hatcher didn't get along. There was a misunderstanding on Brosnan's sort of part. He didn't know. For some reason, they didn't let him know that she was pregnant. Which, uh, uh, you mm. know, would would have surely created a bit of understanding from him. So he says, 
She was late to the set because she was newly pregnant. I got very upset with her. She was always keeping me waiting for hours. I must admit, I let slip a few words which weren't very nice. No one told me her situation until afterwards. Well, I guess at three months, though, you're at that 12-week threshold, aren't you? I mean, you're not really I know, to but tell you're people. making it a Bond film. <laughs> True. True. <laughs> I, th- I think that overrides it, you know. At least, mm. at least something. Give give Brosnan so keeping him waiting for hours. That's no good, is it? I suppose if it's affecting, yeah, st- stuff stuff a lot. If you you wouldn't necessarily tell them if it wasn't an issue, but if you were Absolutely. late all the time and it was causing problems, you yeah. might have to. You go right. This is why. And according to anecdotes from the crew, that slapping scene didn't require much acting. <laughs> oh, I um, bet. Yeah. So Terry Lynn Hatcher was born December the 8th, 1964, in California. Uh, She studied acting at the American Conservatory Theatre. One of her early jobs in 1984, she was a NFL cheerleader for the San Francisco 49ers. So something that comes up when you you have a look for her is her performance in Seinfeld episode. I was about to say Seinfeld, yeah. Yes. Uh, So in 1993... She plays a character called Sidra, who breaks up with Jerry because um, Jerry he's an gets idiot. Uh, yeah, because Jerry's an idiot. Yeah, Jerry gets Elaine to go to they go to a sauna to try and work out if her um, her breasts are, are real or enhanced. And um, so obviously she finds finds this out and then breaks up and has that that parting shot at the end of the episode, which was only only in the script. As and by the way, they're real. Terry Hatcher actually ad libbed. The uh, and they're spectacular, which is the that's the the iconic mm. line, isn't it? She also returned for two further episodes: the pilot in the fourth season finale and the the finale uh, in season nine. Yeah, everyone's in the finale. Yeah, they'll come back. Um, she then went on to land a starring role in, and this is where I first sort of knew her was uh, Lois and Clark, the New Adventures of Superman. Mm. It was Opposite huge, Dean wasn't Kane. it? Absolutely massive. Yeah. I remember watching it on Saturday mornings, live and kicking. It was on it, during live and kicking. Yeah, it was huge. And then my, I can remember the music. I can remember some scenes. Can't for the life remember me what happens in it. It goes on for ages, doesn't it? Yeah. Can't think of one storyline to it. No, apart from they go flying a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that ran from 93 to 97. Uh, in 1995, I thought this was interesting, there was a picture of... Uh, Terry Hatcher wrapped in a Superman cape. It became the most downloaded image with 20,000 downloads each month. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that last that record lasted six months. Amazing. It seems nothing. That's like, that would be seconds now, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, then she went on to play a lead role in Desperate Housewives, which ran from 2004 to 2012. I've not seen it. Have either of you... I've seen a couple it. of them. Well, there's 180 episodes, so yeah, <laughs> eight seasons. So she actually won a uh, Golden Globe for that in 2005. Um, so that's that's taken up a large chunk of her career. In 2018, she won Star Baker on the Stand Up to Cancer Celebrity Bake Off. Mm-hmm. What did she make? Uh, I think it was there was muffins. It was muffin week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've really done your research. <laughs> I did glance at that because I thought, oh, you might ask. Yes, yeah, she, she made some muffins. And then in 2018, she also debuted a YouTube food channel called Hatching Change. So uh, she makes lots of different stuff. Um, she's very into cooking. Um, had a, she does lots of different sort of sorts of culinary stuff. Worth worth a look if you're into food and. You told us enough with muffins. Yeah. You don't need to keep going on about You're it. You're done. You're done. I don't okay. need any recipes, mate. <laughs> so, yeah, that's Paris Carver, played by Terry Hatcher. Something I really mm. like about Paris Carver is that she is the first Bond girl with a history with Bond before the film starts. Mm. And that idea yeah. is sound. It's a great idea. Yeah. Mm. But that's because just... Spot- Spottiswood said he, he what they wanted to create the first sort of Bond woman. Yeah, she said yeah. that. Right, that was more well-rounded and um, had a bit of a backstory. But again, mm. it's just underused, and the concept is not. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not. Well, you 
you can see with that whole bronze bronze era that that's what they're trying to do and we talked about tomorrow dies being like yes it's the first one that barbara and michael g wilson really started working on but it was still under the you know cubby's umbrella whereas you can see it developing can't you world's not enough it take it goes one step further and you get a much more rounded female character but um yeah it's uh, i agree it's a uh, it's, it's, it's a nice angle, isn't it? If it's um, just a pity, it didn't quite work out in that film. Mm. And and also, I like the line about the sleeping with your gun under the pillow because that sort of comes back in Die Another Day, doesn't it? Where he goes to yeah. bed and puts the gun under the pillow, yeah. which is a lovely bit of symmetry, mm. I think. Yeah, yeah. That's today's m- reference of Die Another Day. Uh, ticked off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh, just one last thing about Terry uh, Hatcher. There was a rumor of a couple of years ago that she was homeless. Did you, do you remember this? No. <laughs> no, and she had to go to the press because there was pictures of her living in a camper van but it was just for some TV programme she was making where she was driving around in a camper van but yeah like like National Enquirer had her on the front page saying she was homeless but, um, but she, she was getting paid $280,000 an episode on Desperate Housewives she's not going to be she's not going to be homeless is she <laughs> that's oh, Elliot dear. Carver he's just he's having his last laugh isn't he he's putting the paper <laughs> stories in the paper <laughs> C is for Carver, Rosie Carver. So Rosie Carver is the character um, in Live and Let Die. She plays, oh, well, she is She is the uh, CIA agent who Bond meets on the island of San Monique. And we find out later on in the film that she's actually a double agent and she's working for uh, Dr. Kananga. Um, I know you've watched this one recently, Brendan. Mm-hmm. And she's, so she's, her, her, role is i think she's quite the concept is quite interesting of, of the character she comes in as kind of a ditzy um a bit scared cia agent and and rog and rogers bond is kind of protecting her and guiding her through and then she's there's a few scenes where she's just plays this scared character um where there's a dead snake i think drops out of a cupboard and then there's a voodoo hat and she's She's shocked by those, so um, Bond is like the hero who makes her feel better. Um, and eventually, uh, she uh, he finds out that she's the enemy. She she runs off and she gets shot by the, the Kananga scarecrows. Do you remember those? Yeah, the coconuts. Scary things. The coconuts. They've got good. Sorry. They're coconuts, aren't they? Yeah, coconut scarecrow yeah. things, and they've got they've got like weird guns in their mouths. Mm. Um, I can't. How are they actually? I, I I couldn't remember how they're actually operated. Do we ever find out? No. They just no. The gun just comes just, out the mouth, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, could, I think when I was a kid, I always used to think there was somebody in them, but never never worked no. out what was actually um, how they were operated. So anyway, that is Rosie Carver. She was played by uh, Gloria Hendry, uh, born on March third, nineteen forty nine. She was an actress and a model. She's done quite a lot of stuff. Um, she was born in Jacksonville in oh, Winter Haven, Florida. Apparently the sources differ, according to Wikipedia. She began a professional career as a Playboy model uh, and worked at the New York Club for a, for a few years in, until 1972. Uh, she received her first acting job in a fairly pretty impressive role to get for uh, your first acting job. In, it was in Sidney Poitier's film For Love of Ivy, which I haven't seen, but I have heard about it being quite a good film. And she also was in a film uh, called The Landlord uh, in 1970. Uh, in the Bond series, she became the first African-American woman to become romantically involved with 007. She's not the first African-American Bond girl. That goes to uh, Trina Parks, who, of course, plays Thumper in Diamonds Are Forever. And she's got a, she does loads of uh, 1970s black black exploitation films. And I don't I've never seen hardly any black exploitation films so i don't know any of these films slaughter's big ripoff black caesar hell up in harlem all these films that i don't know of uh but yeah she was in a lot of those and yeah so she's i mean there's apart from those she's not been in a lot of films that we probably know of uh but talking about uh, she did a quite good interview um and it's i'm not sure if it was originally on commander commander but that's where the interview is and it's quite detailed she talks quite a lot about her whole experience with the Bond series. One one interesting thing, and obviously at the time, racism was a was a big factor in in not only making the film but just in general. 
all, all around the world. So there's a there was a big kind of media coverage on on that that part of the film and 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 the kind of censorship and all the stuff that happened around around that time. But she talks quite interestingly, quite a big quote this one, but I thought it was quite interesting because it adds a bit more depth into Harry Saltzman. She says, she, uh, I remember Harry Saltzman t- talking seriously to me about racism. He expressed that it was a shame that we still had racism. He said that everyone should marry another race. So no one could say they were one race or the other and this would stamp out racism. Now it goes a bit weird. <laughs> he suggested to me that I should marry a Caucasian. Then he introduced me to a very special gentleman whom he considered would be a good choice for me to marry. I went out with him a couple of times and he told me how to dress and act. I became disinterested in an arranged marriage. So that's quite an interesting answer to give to a, um, to give an interview. Um, but yeah, and then later on, she talks a little bit about her media attention. And she says, she talks quite a bit about how when the film came out um, and a lot of the interview that I read and, and some of the other surrounding bits I read really do focus on the kind of race side of um, uh, the, the, the film world at that time and she talked about media attention from the film and she says that when uh, the film came out um, she was really popular and she and and she was in all the papers and everything like that and then it just kind of disappeared she says that I found after time had passed my name was no longer associated with the film nor was I named or called upon when there was mention or request of the 007 Bond ladies I never knew what to think of that which is kind of true. You do. She's not one of the, the the kind of historical Bond girls that you see cropping up all the time, is she? You don't. She's not in a lot of interviews or um, the kind of Bond documentaries and stuff that you see cropping up. No. Um, another thing she talks about as well was Roger Moore. Interestingly, in this interview, they talk about her relationship with Roger Moore, and in his in Bond's James Bond diary, which is obviously from from the film Live and Let Die, he refers to her as Glory Ass. And they suggest that it's, it's led some people to believe that they didn't, the two didn't get on on set. But she completely disputes that. And she says that they had a great relationship. She says, uh, throughout the film of Living at Die, Roger Moore and Harry Saltzman were most gracious and kind to me. During our stay in Jamaica, my hotel room was located in between Roger and his family and Harry and, uh, Harry and his family. And I had a great pleasure of meeting and often having dinner with them. And she just felt that they wanted to keep an eye on her and keep her safe, so they they you know st- she stayed quite close to them. Yeah, and then the other area is there's, co- there's a couple of other interesting areas about about her as well. Where they, uh, she was when they were talking about killing her off, she was called into a meeting, and uh, she says, "I was called in for a meeting with Harry and Guy, who said, in essence, we don't want to kill you off because so many people like you. So stand by, there might be a script change." A couple of days after that, Harry apologised that they had to kill me. <laughs> That's an interesting turn of events. Plot twist. And then just just lastly, apparently, and I've I've saw this on a few accounts. I don't know how true it is, but there was a there was a uh, role change for Solitaire. Apparently, Solitaire was was a, a, apparently meant to be the um, African American actress, and then um, uh, and and vice versa. But uh, oh, she says one day someone on the set came up to me and and told the story that the role of Solitaire was initially written for uh, a black and, uh, and a black actress was hired to play the part. While filming somewhere in New York City or New Orleans, they decided that it was too risky to have a black woman end up with James Bond. Therefore, the role of Rosie Carver was switched to black and the role of Solitaire was switched to white. Which is quite an interesting state of affairs and you can imagine how that film would be very different if you swapped those those around. But amazing that in those days that it just affected so many. You just had to completely change the script just to, to suit that um, what was going on in, uh, in the world and people's viewpoints. Um, and then just lastly... Lastly, uh, lastly, lastly, lastly. Well, this is a very small lastly, and it's not very interesting. But Rosie <laughs> was subsequently adapted for the James Bond 007 role-playing in Her Majesty's Secret Service tabletop role-playing game. So that's the last time that character appears in the Bond series. And I've never heard of this game, but we should get it one day, and uh, we'll uh, all come around my house and play the on Her Majesty's Service tabletop role-playing game. I don't even know what that is. What is that? What does that well, mean? Well, I don't know what it is. What That's are those words I'm... you are saying? I don't understand. Well, I'm assuming it's like some sort of Dungeons and Dragons right. Secret Service game where you sit around a table with cards. Okay. I've actually come across it this game. right up your street, Brendan. I've come across you... this game. It looks, it looks quite interesting. Yeah? Yeah. I, I've seen a few of these board, these board games. They're quite complicated by the looks of it. Um, so, yeah, come and stay over for four or five days and we'll really get to grips with it. Um, so there we go. That's... Uh, as that's Rosie Carver, played by uh, Gloria Hendry. 
Yeah, and shout out to the 007 Diaries, the Roger Moore book from Live and Let Die. That is an absolute page turner. It's a brilliant book if you haven't read it. Oh, I, I wish some of the other Bonds had done those. Yeah, I wish Imagine he'd done more. What, what, Roger? Yeah. I can't, what was the reason he did it? He talks about it at the start of the book and why he... I think he thought he was going to do one for every, to do every film, but I think he only did it for this one. But it's fantastic. It's, it's yeah. recently come back into print and I picked up a copy and it's well worth a copy. Well worth a picking yeah. up. I've been I've been listening to it on the uh, the old audio book version. Did he record it? No, I don't think he records that one. He's he he only does. I think he's only done one of his books. I need to check. I don't think he has. But it's yeah, it's it's an interesting one. It's a little bit it's a little bit close to the nerve. A lot of it. I mean, it's of its time, time. It's, it's of its time. Yeah. It's, so some of it's a bit difficult to read. But yeah, no, it's really interesting to hear because obviously it was his first one as well. So it's some. It's really. I'd love to read. That one, and then if he'd done one on View to a Kill, that would have been brilliant. <laughs> there we go, there's our View to a Kill mention, tick. Um, so yeah, there we go, Rosie Carver. C is for Case, Tiffany Case. Tiffany Case, uh, of course, is a jewel smuggler who gets mixed up with James Bond in the 1971 film, Diamonds Are Forever, and she is played in the film by Jill St. John. She was, in fact, the very first ever American Bond girl. So a little bit about Jill. Uh, she was born Jill Arlen Oppenheim in L.A. in August 1940, um, and her mother changed Jill's last name to be more Hollywood-sounding um, during her adolescence, so she changed her name from Jill Oppenheim to Jill St. John. She began acting at the age of six and made uh, on radio and then made her screen debut in 1949 at the age of nine in A Christmas Carol, a full-length, uh, t- um, full-length TV movie. She, in 1957, when she was 16, she was signed by Universal Pictures uh, for seven-year contract and she made her major studio film debut with Summer Love. She then later signed a contract with 20th Century Fox who also tried to build her into a star. And she was in a few films there, including The Lost World, which is obviously is a, do- a second dinosaur movie mention of the week. That's the theme of this episode. <clears throat> Dinosaurs, yeah. Uh, well, actually, I've got another theme coming up for you. I'm sh- see if you can spot it. Uh, St. John had a key role in a film, uh, uh, something called Come Blow Your Horn with Frank Sinatra, in which she received a Glo- Golden Globe nomination for Best Actress. Um, and it was around this time she sort of really decided rather than being a dramatic actress, she wanted to be a comic actress. She was then in a number of comedies. Who's Minding the Store with Jerry Lewis in 1963? Who's Been Sleeping in My Bed with Dean Martin in 1963? And then 1964's Honeymoon Hotel, which stars Robert Morse and Nancy Kwan. Um Around this time, she started to guest star in television shows, including Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, uh, Burke's Law... And she then was given her first female lead uh, by MGM in 1965 with a a spy spoof around the time of the spy boom, kickstarted by James Bond, in a film called The Liquidator, which Wheatley, I think you've talked about before. Yes. Shirley Bassey. John Barry did the soundtrack. Shirley Bassey did the theme song. That was it, yeah. With Lalo Schifrin. And then she had a supporting role in a film in 1967 called How I Spent My Summer Vacation with Robert Wagner, who she later goes on to marry. Right. So, yeah, she did loads of TV stuff um, and movies, so many different uh, roles. She basically was super busy, super popular. And in 1971, that's when she gets the call for Diamonds Are Forever. So talking about being in a James Bond film, Jill St. John said, who would not want to be in a Bond film? They're so exciting and so interesting. The special effects are fabulous and the women are always larger than life. And not to mention Sean Connery. You become part of the history of Bond. That's very flattering. So in 1971, it was reported by Variety that Raquel Welsh was going to be the film's femme fatale. Um, but that her playing a role in the film would dis- would hinge on who's playing James Bond. Because if you can remember at this time, um, George Lazenby uh, was not returning to play James Bond. They didn't know who was going to play Bond. A number of different people were were, were in the frame for it. Um, uh, actually, Raquel Welsh had been cast to play Domino in Thunderball, um, but she had to be released from that film to star in Fantastic Voyage. 
Um, and actually, Dire- Diamonds Are Forever director Guy Hamilton thought Raquel Welsh might overpower 007 on screen. He thought she was just too much. He told uh, Cubby, Bond and Raquel together is a bad chemistry. She's just too much animal for this role, this particular role, which is a weird thing to say, mm. I think. Mm. An actress called Linda Thorson met with Albert Broccoli, uh, Cubby Broccoli, to be considered to play Tiffany Case. Do you know Linda Thorson? No. She no. was in the Avengers. She was the, in the last series of the Avengers with Patrick McNee. But oh, the new Avengers? Uh, no, in the original Avengers, she was in the last series. So she oh, succeeded yes, Diana Rigg. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, but um, she never got it. She didn't get the part, apparently, because her hair wasn't long enough. I don't know. Oh, that's a bit of fair. <laughs> yeah. So this is where this is where Jill St. John's story starts to get really interesting. Okay, so there's a man called Sidney Korshak, and he is helping Cubby to set up deals in Vegas to so they could shoot on the strip. And we'll do, go into this in a lot more detail when we get to Diamonds Are Forever. But he basically suggested, you know, is there a role for Jill St. John? She might have been dating Korshak at the time. And so Korshak as it transpires, was a lawyer and a fixer for basically people in power and also for the Chicago Mafia. Um, and his reputation as the Chicago's mob, Chicago mobs man in LA made him one of Hollywood's most fabled and influential fixers. And he was named the most powerful lawyer in the world by the FBI. Mm. One of his clients actually was Jimmy Hoffa, who you may have seen in the recent film, The Irishman. So quite an interesting character working with Cubby to get this film made. And when he obviously suggests, you know, casting his friend in the film, then they have to take it quite seriously. <laughs> and at the time, Jill St. John was dating George Lazenby. Oh, I did not know that. George, George Lazenby was actually living with Jill St. John when he turned down the chance to appear in Diamonds Are Forever. Now, Jill St. John, how to put this politely, she had quite quite a lot of gentleman friends in the 60s. And fair play to her. She really had a high, high hit rate of the men she was dating. And this is a funny quote from her. She said, the longest period of celibacy for Jill St. John is the shortest distance between two lovers, I suppose. She was just, you know, this was like the peak. You said that? She said that. She said that. This is the peak of sexual liberation. Fair play to her. Uh, Absolutely fair play to her. Here are some of the men that she dated. Michael Caine, Sean Connery, Robert Evans, Glenn Ford, David Frost, Henry Kissinger. David Frost? Yeah. Peter Lawford, George Lazenby, uh, Tom Mankiewicz, Jack Nicholson, Roman Polanski, Tom Selleck, Frank Sinatra, Robert Vaughan, and and Adam West. What? Adam West. These are all Jeez, men who've what been linked. Line that, that is. What I know. I know. I mean, Jill St. John, and you are And it's not even my... like a core theme. She is. It's not like, she, oh, she goes for the macho ones. She's eclectic. She, yeah. Anyway, I, I'm a big fan. <laughs> so Cubby, Cubby agreed for her to play Plenty O'Toole, which is the other big role in, uh, well, not mm. big role, but it's the yeah. other female role in Diamonds Are Forever. Guy Hamilton said, over my dead body. <laughs> Because, and uh, yeah, well, listen, this is this is his words, not mine. The role of Plenty old O'Toole needs someone with enormous tits. So, mm-hmm. apologies, that's his words, not well, ours. Well, you, 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 you do kind of need that with the name, don't you? That's kind of the point. So, <laughs> Guy Hamilton and Cubby apparently had their only ever fight over this situation. They had a huge row. Um, it was the only row the two that the two of them ever had. In the end. They both agreed it would be better for her to be Tiffany Case. And so they told Sidney Korshak and then Jill St. John came around that night and they um, had a drink with her and decided she would take the role of Tiffany Case. Mm. So if you remember, she meets Bond in Amsterdam and he's infiltrating the diamond smuggling pipeline. Mm. Uh, Bond is um, posing as Peter Franks, um, who he intercepts and kills. And then he tells Tiffany that the man he kills is 007. Interesting fact, I've been in that lift. Very good. I've told you that before. <laughs> is that in London or in Amsterdam? It's in London, it's in Holborn. Right. I read about it's, this. It's a media agency nowadays, or it was. Yeah, yeah, I read about this. But, but I only realised when I was in the lift, I went, this is... No, this lift? And then someone <laughs> said, oh yeah, it was in a Bond film. <laughs> oh. Okay. So they obviously... Uh, 
travel then to um, LA, smuggling the diamonds that Bond has in Peter Franks' body. And then they're switched out mm. um, by Bond. So when Plenty O'Toole gets killed by Winton Kidd, she then joins forces with Bond because she realises she's, she's going to be the next one to get bumped off. Um, she's kidnapped by Blofeld in drag and then they travel to the oil, oil rig together. And obviously then in the end, Bond and Tiffany go off on a cruise and they're attacked by Winton Kidd one, one last time. So we don't learn much about Tiffany's background in the film other than that she was born on the floor of Tiffany's The Jewellers while her mother was shopping for a wedding ring. Uh, but in the novel, her story is fleshed out in much more detail. And actually, it's a hell of a lot darker. Um, in the novel, her father, she's named Tiffany Case because um, Tiffany's father was so annoyed that she was not a boy that he gave her mother a thousand dollars and a powder case from tiffany's and walked out so she decided to call her, her tiffany and in the book wow. her mother becomes a madam um and tiffany's an alcoholic because she'd been gang raped by a group of men and and she's developed a hatred of men so bond meets her and she's in a very very dark place but she's turned her life around mm. and obviously by the end of the book they become lovers and actually in the book she's the only Bond girl ever to then stay with Bond at the end of the book and go and live with him. So she ends the book living with him. But in the next book from Russia with Love, she's left Bond. She's found him too difficult to live with. And she's, go, she's left to, to marry an American uh, military mm. man. So back to the film. Obviously, Guy Hamilton knew that Jill St. John had been imposed on him. Um, and, and Jill St. John was, you know, aware of this as well. And it was obviously just the strength of this guy, Sidney Korshak. But Hamilton, begrudgingly, at the end, you know, he admitted that she's great and she was great in the film. And she is fantastic in that film. Yeah. That opening yeah. scene with her and the wigs, you know, and they're going backwards for us and that banter about the, the cuffs and the collars and all that sort of stuff is, is really good. She's fantastic in the film, I think. Mm. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, she knew the the broccolis already, so they so apparently she didn't have to screen test. She hadn't read the book either, but she felt real or real affinity with the character. She said, "I rather thought of her as myself. I put a lot of myself into the character, and I just loved the name. She was outside of the norm. She was many many things, and I feel like I've had several lives. I really identified with Tiffany." So interestingly, about Jill St. John, as I mentioned, she had a relationship with Sean Connery apparently. Her and Lana Wood, plenty of tall, apparently had relationships with Connery during the making of Diamonds Are Forever uh, because it was a period when Di Connery had separated from Diane Salento uh, and he, they actually divorced where's, in where's Lazenby? 1973. Well, she left Lazenby and then shacked up with Connery. So, so she's recast her boyfriend the same as Bond they did with Bond. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Um, she hasn't got... Roger on the list as well. <laughs> wasn't on the list, no. No, Roger was married, wasn't he, by the time? Yeah. yeah. Um, so they filmed in Vegas and then at Pinewood, and uh, Jill St. John said that she really enjoyed her time in London. She recalls the stuntman Bob Simmons making kippers for the crew at breakfast, um, and she actually rented a place owned by Jacqueline Saltzman, Harry's wife. Mm. She said that the Broccolis were really gracious hosts and they would often dine together. Uh, but she called Harry a little bit of a grey-haired bulldog, although she did admit that he was a kind man also. <laughs> so that that's about it with Jill St. John. She's, yeah, she attended Cubby's funeral. She's had quite a big career afterwards. She left Hollywood in 1972, uh, moved to Aspen, Colorado. She's had um, a, a career uh, as a TV, uh, culinary TV chef on Good Morning America and had a column in USA Weekend magazine throughout the 80s writing about food. She has been. She appeared in Seinfeld. Um, oh, did she? Yep, yeah, in the Yada Yada episode uh, in 1997. Oh. And she has been married four times to Neil Dublin, who was the heir to a linen fortune, a man called Lance Reventlow, who I think had something to do with racing. Then she was married to a singer called Jack Jones and then she was married to Robert Wagner from 1990 and she's still married to Robert Wagner now. Um, so, yeah, that's it. Her and Robert Wagner appear in a lot of films and TV things together around the world in 80 days. And, yeah, they've appeared on stage together and all sorts of stuff. But, yeah, that's that's basically it. That's Tiffany Case, as played by Jill St. John, my new favourite Bond girl. 
I think she, I, I was thinking about when when I think of Tiffany Case in Diamonds Are Forever, I, I do think, oh, she's great. And then I think about the film, and I think, oh, the film's not that good. So she's probably one of the good, the best features of that of that film. I seem to remember she does the same thing though that we mentioned quite a lot, where she does start off quite interesting, and then she she ends up being a little bit pathetic towards the end and well they put her in that bikini in the end don't they she has yeah. that whole sequence on the oil rig and she's just basically wearing a bra and knickers which um yeah happens quite yeah. a bit doesn't it yeah. but she's got a bit of uh, of sass to her i think she's quite an interesting yeah character yeah I, I i yeah just reiterate that really I, I watched diamonds are forever recently and um yeah she's definitely one of the positives yeah yeah well i'm, I'm just glad they didn't go into the, as much depth as they did in the book with her I think that would have changed the, f- the film quite a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's it for another episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. Thank you so much for listening to our ramblings on about uh, the James Bond films. We will be back next time with a special, another special Ooh. Which one is it? I don't actually know. <laughs> Casino Royale. Oh, blimey. Which one? We're going to do in chronological order. So <laughs> strap yourselves in. We're going off piste. We're doing 1967's Casino Royale starring David Niven. Ooh. Oh, boy. Indeed. Right, I haven't actually seen this. How am I going to get a copy? <laughs> well, listen, we'll it's do it. It's quite easy to get on. I think it's only about a fiver on, on mine it? to buy. Yeah. <laughs> So that's going to probably make a lot of money out of people looking for Casino Royale, seeing that and looking at the blurb and going, oh, it's James Bond, that's the one, yeah. getting it. And then they realise it's Woody Allen. Christmas ruined. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's going to be... dad's going, oh, brilliant. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting one for sure. So please join us next time. And uh, yeah, while we delve into a Bond film that isn't really a Bond film, but still interesting nonetheless. But if people want to get in touch with us, how can they get hold of us? On the, all the socials, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, with the handle at James Bond A to Z. Z. Or please. Oh, it again. Gone. What? It's gone American again. Sorry, it's fine. <laughs> um, did you say email just then? No. No. Oh, I'll say that now. Uh, <laughs> or, or please do email us at podcast at jamesbond a to z dot co dot uk. Yeah, and wherever you're listening to this, please leave us a good review. Tell your friends. Um, tell your enemies. Uh, tell us if you like it or not. Tell us yeah. if you like it or not. Um, and yeah, please join us next time. James Bond will return. Not not the actual James Bond, but a James no. Bond. Thanks. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Inglemels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. <laughs>